Hello and welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, naturopathic nutritional therapist and hormone enthusiast. If you want to learn how to rebalance your female hormones, regulate your menstrual cycle and reclaim your vitality, then you are in the right place. Each week I will be delving into different conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, infertility, hypothyroidism, acne and hair loss. Stay tuned for interviews with expert guests, Q&As and solo episodes that are all intended to help you move from hormonal chaos to hormonal harmony. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, then you can email them to hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Hi guys, welcome back to episode number 16 of the podcast and another solo Q&A episode. Today we've got two questions. One of them is covering menstrual cycle health and trying to conceive. And the other one is a young girl dealing with anxiety that started, well, it got exacerbated when she moved to university and she's wanting to know some simple, cheap recommendations to help to manage or even reverse her anxiety if that's at all possible. So we're going to be diving into both of those topics today. Starting off with the first question that came from a listener called Jess. She said, hi Vivian, I came off the contraceptive pill in January 2018, knowing that at one point in 2019, me and my partner would want to start trying for a baby. However, my cycles haven't returned to normal. The first two to three cycles were about 35 to 45 days, but since then they're getting longer and my last cycle was actually 130 days long. I went to my doctor who tested me for PCOS, overactive thyroid and anemia, but all tests have come back normal and the only additional help they're willing to give me is a medication to force my period each time my cycle goes beyond 28 days. I really, really don't like the idea of forcing my body to bleed. I also don't understand whether this would be a normal period or more of a fake bleed like when you're using the pill. My question is, if what my doctor has tested for is thorough enough, should I be confident in thinking that there is no underlying issues with my reproductive system? Would you recommend any further testing? And are there any diet changes I could make to improve the chances of my cycle returning to normal? I do try and monitor my temperature using natural cycles, but as far as I can see, I don't ovulate at the moment. Since coming off the pill, I've also experienced acne for the first time in my life. I actually lost a little weight, but my hair is thinning. Before I started the pill at age 17, I didn't have regular periods as I'd only started less than 12 months before. I'd say I eat relatively healthy, 75% plant-based, no dairy as I have an intolerance, although I do eat sugar and drink alcohol, but I'd say that it's much less than the average 26-year-old. I don't take any supplements, and I do yoga three to four times a week and strength training two to three times. Me and my partner really want to start trying for a baby this September or October. Hoping I can enlist your help, whichever way works best. Thank you so much. So Jess, there's a lot going on with this case, and... Yeah, I'm really looking forward to diving in a little bit deeper and hopefully pointing you in the right direction as to where you should turn next because it doesn't seem like you're getting anywhere with your conventional doctors. You kind of got the one option of trying this pill, which induces a bleed. And to your question, 
no, it won't be a regular period because you won't be ovulating still. It's just going to be a chemical withdrawal from the, the medication that you're taking, similar to the birth control pill. So obviously I can't give medical advice on this podcast, just as a disclaimer. And everything that I mentioned today is just going to be for educational purposes only and just to inspire you and provide you with some information for you to make your own choices. So just keep that in the back of your mind throughout. I want to start off by congratulating you really on coming off the pill well in advance and wanting to start to make a change with your hormones. I think that's a really massive step and one that a lot of people overlook. They don't think it's important and then they become really stressed and frustrated because they want to get pregnant right now. And for you, it's been nearly two years that you're giving your body, which is absolutely amazing. And even though you're not experiencing massive benefits from that at the moment, I do think it's a good thing because you're kind of letting your body rebalance and get back into its own natural rhythm. And you've actually uncovered that there are some imbalances going on. And if you were to just hop straight off the pill, get pregnant straight away, if there were any lingering nutrient deficiencies or hormone imbalances there, that could sadly lead in early loss of the pregnancy or even worse, pregnancy or complications with the health of your child. So in some ways, it can be a bit of a positive if you can try and reframe it that way in your learning how to care for your body and rebalance everything before you actually get pregnant. So try and have that mindset, especially for anyone else dealing with health issues. Although it can seem a massive pain at the time, it's actually a learning curve and it's an educational moment for you to learn what's going on in your body how you can take care of it and it's kind of a message from the universe that something's off and you need to find what that is you need to work on those things before you can get the results that you want to see and I'm not quite sure how long you were on the pill for that would be interesting to know because it's a massive difference between whether you were on the pill for six months or 20 years I have no idea Um, with the information that you provided and obviously the longer that you've been on it the potential more damage that can have been done the more nutrients depleted the more inflammation and the longer it takes to regulate things once your cycle comes back so just keep that in mind too if you've been on the pill for decades say 10 to 20 years then your body's going to take more time to repair that than someone who's been on the pill for a couple of months And similarly, how were your periods before the pill? You said that they weren't regular and you'd only had a couple of periods because you went on the pill pretty soon after starting them. But were they really heavy? Were they really light? Were they painful? Did you experience a lot of PMS? This is also important information as to what's going on. And I know that you didn't really suffer with acne beforehand, but did you deal with some of the other symptoms like breast tenderness, oily skin, mood swings, those types of things? They could all provide you with a little bit more information and insight into what's currently going on with your health. But again, things can completely change in this period of time and the results of your current lifestyle and some negative effects from the pill could be making a different picture and different hormone imbalance these days you say that your blood tests are normal your doctors told you that but again they could be quote normal in terms of nhs ranges or conventional medicine but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're optimal they're the they're the ranges that we want to focus on the optimal ranges because the people who 
go to lab tests a lot of the time. They're the ones who are sick and therefore the reference ranges that are created are going to be a general average of the people who are going for blood tests most regularly, so the sick people. Therefore, the lab tests, the optimal ranges, aren't going to be what you need for optimal health and to feel fully vital and fertile. They're just going to be completely different to what you've been told. And in terms of thyroid, you mentioned they tested you for an overactive thyroid. I'm guessing you mean underactive because some of these symptoms don't really correlate with an overactive thyroid. Um, but I'm not I'm not too sure what's going on. Maybe the weight loss is that that's what they've put down to being an overactive thyroid, but that would be interesting to know. Ideally, we want your TSH between one and two. Conventional lab ranges can go up to six or eight. That's deemed normal, but at that stage, your thyroid is pretty damaged and pretty out of whack. And that's when it can take a lot of time, effort, and sometimes medication to actually make you feel good again. Whereas if we see your TSH creeping up to 2.5, 3, 3.5, that would be an indicator in my mind that something's going out of whack. And the good thing is if we catch it early enough, then we can actually stop that process a lot of the time and actually get things under control before any major damage starts to occur. And with the thyroid as well, if they've tested TSH and you've been told that that's normal, there are many other hormone markers for your thyroid that need to be tested. That's known as a full thyroid panel, and you're very rarely going to get that from a conventional doctor. They just believe that TSH is the number one test, and if that's fine, then your whole thyroid's fine. But TSH is actually a brain hormone. So it's not actually what your thyroid's doing, it's what your brain's telling your thyroid. So it is helpful in some situations. However, even the people who have subclinical hypothyroidism, they have normal TSHs, so even between the optimal ranges of one and two, but the rest of the thyroid markers are below range. These include T4, T3, reverse T3, the free levels, the total levels of the hormones, and most importantly, thyroid antibodies, because these can be elevated for six to 10 years before any damage is actually done to the thyroid. And this process is known as an autoimmune condition. So Hashimoto's thyroiditis is the leading cause of hypothyroidism. So it's one of the root causes of this problem. And it's when your body and your immune system start to attack your thyroid gland because it gets confused and it starts to mistake your thyroid for a pathogen or a different molecule in your body that it's trying to defend against. You could be experiencing all the thyroid symptoms in the world, have normal TSH, T4, T3, but if your antibodies are elevated, then that's going to be causing damage to the thyroid. And then down the line, eventually your thyroid will start to become damaged, it will slow down the output, and that will lead to a host of metabolic symptoms. With the other lab tests that you've had done, the iron, you've been checked for anemia, did they check just iron, or did they check ferritin, which is the stored version of iron? That should ideally be between the ranges of 75 and 100 for optimal health. And did they also check your B12 and folate as well? Because that can cause a different form of anemia, which can have similar symptoms, but obviously has a different treatment strategy. 
with the testing for PCOS as well, it'd be important to know what tests they did with that because there are different tests that you can do. And just if they do an ultrasound, that's not enough to diagnose PCOS. And I see that all the time. People who aren't having periods or they aren't having regular periods, they go for an ultrasound, they'll see the cysts, quote, cysts on the ovaries, which aren't actually growths or tumours, they're just undeveloped eggs. And they're told that they have PCOS. The average woman you take off the street, probably 50% of them are going to have that appearance if you test them at a certain time of the month for a million different reasons. So that's not a diagnostic criteria. What they should be looking at is your fasting glucose and insulin levels, your thyroid, so the full thyroid markers that I mentioned, androgens, so your testosterone, sex hormone binding globulin, because if that's low, then that could be leading to all of your male hormones and estrogens floating around the system and not being bound up to this sponge that sex hormone binding globulin is. And also the ratio between FSH and LH is important to determine if you're in area or if your irregular cycles are due to stress and a condition known as hypothalamic amenorrhea or if they're due to PCOS and insulin resistance. There's different patterns that these two hormones can result in and that can indicate different things too. So if they're doing any less than those tests, then that's just not sufficient enough. I have a free guide on my website. It's the PCOS test to request guide. That's a bit of a mouthful, but um, if you head over to the free download section of my website, you can download that, maybe print it out, take that to your GP and make sure that they've done some of those tests. And if not, you can ask for the other remaining ones. This will help you determine if you do actually have PCOS or if there's some sort of thyroid or nutrient deficiencies going on because the pill does cause a lot of nutrient deficiencies and that's one of the reasons why it can cause so many symptoms whilst you're on it and also when you come off too. It can just cause a multitude of symptoms because nutrients, vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, they're all needed as core factors in the body for different enzymatic reactions and pretty much everything runs on enzyme functions. Therefore, if you're lacking a crucial nutrient, there's going to be hundreds if not thousands of processes that your body can't actually perform optimally. And you were right in your comment that the medications and using a pill doesn't address the root cause. If they're using if they're going to put you back on the birth control pill, then you're going to be back in the same situation. I'm not sure what pill you meant by when you said that they're going to give you one to trigger your bleeding. Maybe it's a progesterone only pill. But again, that's just going to trigger a withdrawal bleed. It's not going to support ovulation. It's not going to really benefit your body in many ways. There's some research to, to show that it can help with reducing the risk of endometrial cancer because you need a regular shedding of that uterine lining. But in my opinion, I would personally try to work more on finding the root cause and so that my body can ovulate regularly. Because you've had periods in the past, even if they were irregular, your body can bleed and it wants to bleed, but there's something stopping it. So we need to find out the barriers to ovulation, if there's any present. Continue with the temperature tracking. I think that's really helpful. It can be a little bit stressful in some situations. So maybe leave it a couple of months or weeks until you feel like some changes have been made because it can be a little bit frustrating constantly seeing that temperature not spike or it's fluctuating up and down every day. 
So when you feel like some changes have been made, maybe you, you start to pay attention to your cervical mucus or cervix position instead of the temperature, if that works a little bit better for you, but everyone's different. And the barriers to ovulation are going to be things like the nutrient deficiencies. So the pill depletes so many crucial nutrients for thyroid health, for hormonal function, for fertility, which is ironic. And these are going to be things like all your B vitamins, particularly folate and B12, zinc, magnesium, selenium, antioxidants, your probiotic good bacteria in your gut. So nutrient deficiencies, stress, sleep deficiency, poor gut health, a poor diet and either over-exercising or not moving enough can all cause anovulation or late ovulation, low progesterone function once you do ovulate. So consider looking into some of these things when you're trying to find out why you're not ovulating. Other tests that I would recommend, so the ones on the guide that I mentioned that covers pretty much the foundations for any PCOS or thyroid involvement. It's not just a PCOS guide, it really it's a hormonal, just any woman with hormone imbalances I like to run these tests. And apart from that, the next test that I would turn to would be something like a Dutch test. That's the dried urine test for comprehensive hormones. Um, this can be done in the comfort of your own home, but it does need to be run through a practitioner um, who can assess it and interpret it effectively and correctly. And this shows not just the absolute levels of the hormones, so similar to blood, there's a very strong correlation between the blood and the urine, so it is very accurate. But on top of that, it also shows the hormone metabolites, which is actually more important in my opinion, because take PCOS, for example, a lot of women don't show high levels of things like testosterone or androgens in the bloodstream but they're still dealing with the raging acne, the hair loss, the oily skin, the irregular cycles. And it's not until we do something like the Dutch test that we can actually see what's going on. And it shows the metabolites, so the breakdown of these hormones. Even if they're normal in blood, they can be really high or going down the wrong pathways that are producing some of these potent hormones like DHT, which won't really show in the blood, but it can show in the urine. Obviously, these tests are private. You have to pay to pocket for them. The one that I use is around two to three hundred pound, and the information that it provides is actually invaluable. So the women who have run this through me, they're always kind of a bit reluctant to pay for it at first, but once they get it back, they're like, "Oh my god, I can't believe how much information this is provided, and it's worth every single penny because we can." Keep going, spending supplements every single month, changing things with your diet, trial and error. And there's, there's so far we can get with just kind of guessing and going off what I know from my cr clinical practice. But sometimes we do need answers. And it's important to know that even with blood testing, it's just a snapshot in time. And this goes for Dutch tests as well. But I do really think testing is important, but we can't just rely on that either. And I'm a big fan of testing, but I think this is commonly occurring in a lot of practitioners. They just want to test, 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 and they're not actually just listening and seeing the, the patient as a whole. I use the lab testing as a guidance, but I don't take that as the whole truth because certain markers can be thrown out of whack just depending on the day that you, you're, you're running them. So take cortisol, for example, which the Dutch test does measure. 
on a particular day it could be that your cortisol is spiking really high and it could be that you were driving to work and someone pulled in front of your car and that's just going to set you up for high cortisol for the rest of the day in a lot of cases and that doesn't necessarily represent every single day and what's going on in your daily routine and similarly with blood tests the stress of getting your blood drawn can throw off different markers in your bloodstream a bit inflammation markers your blood glucose levels could elevate your cortisol could elevate if they're going to run that so remember even though your tests may show normal or they may show out of whack either way we can't just rely on them 100 percent. we have to also take a step back this is why it's really important to work with someone too because when it comes to our own health it's hard to see the wood for the tree sometimes we can get carried away with lab testing and not take a bigger picture approach because when it comes when it comes to our own health we can kind of miss certain things or not think things are important but when someone with an outside perspective looks in they can see things that you've maybe overlooked or haven't thought was relevant and they actually are the acne and the hair loss that you're experiencing now could be related to an androgen rebound. So because you've been on the pill, that's been suppressing your androgen production most likely. And the communication from your brain to your ovaries has been completely on shutdown for that whole entire time. So now that you've stopped the pill, your body's relearning how to regulate your cycles again. If you started your period at age 16, if I'm reading that correctly, that's actually a little bit late to actually begin your period. The Average time is probably from age 12 to 14, but when someone's age 15, 16, that could be an actual indicating factor that there's some imbalance from the start. So the irregular cycles, the fact that you started a bit later, there could be indications for PCOS or a thyroid issue. And when you've been taking the pill for that long, that could have suppressed or masked those issues for a long time. I know that you've come off the pill, they could start to be resurfacing again. It actually takes about 12 years for your body to normalize and regulate proper ovulation and menstrual function from when you start the period. So you start age 16, your body needs 12 years, so getting to age 28 to fully be in ovulation and fertility flow and menstrual flow and really know what it's doing. However, when you start the pill in between those years, that can halt this maturation process. So because you started the pill just a year after starting your period, your body has only had one year out of those 12 to actually start to regulate and normalize. Once you come off the pill, your body can only then restart the process that it was originally trying to. So you're only one year into the 12 years of your body learning how to ovulate. That can be a little bit daunting and a little bit scary to think of. And I don't necessarily think it's going to take another 11 years for your hormones to regulate again. But you're going to expect it to take longer than the average person just because of the length of time that you've been on the pill and the fact that you didn't really have period of time for your body to regulate before you started the pill and I think that's the problem I have with many doctors and gynecologists putting these young girls on the pill for one it doesn't address the root cause and a lot of them are just trying to overcome the physical symptoms like hair loss or acne you're actually just making a massive change for something that could be so minor and easily improved with diet and lifestyle and the second thing is that you're not giving these women 
and their bodies time to regulate and start to learn how to do some of these processes and that's why long term there's so many more hormone imbalances it's not just because of this there's obviously the environmental aspects too but i just think that we're just constantly pushing these pills and recommending them as a cure-all when there's so many other things that we can do obviously people are using them for contraceptive reasons and that's absolutely fine i believe that's fine as long as they know all of the risk factors not just the slight increased risk of breast cancer or stroke like we're sometimes not always told but also the other maybe not so serious things but can absolutely affect your life like the nutrient deficiencies the gut health impacts it can have the mental health aspects depression anxiety brain fog those types of things it's just so important that we start to share some of this information doctors should educate women on this too it shouldn't just be practitioners like myself and some of these women's health practitioners trying to spread this knowledge. It shouldn't really be down to us, it should be common knowledge, but that's what makes me so passionate about this area. I just want to provide the information that I wish I knew when I was 14, 15, 16 years old. In terms of your diet, Jess, when you say that you're plant-based, that doesn't really say anything to me it could be that you're eating chips rice or soy products all day long or it could be quinoa lentils and broccoli i've just no idea what that means um my my thoughts would be just to focus on whole foods real foods made at home as much as possible so the mother you're eating out you're exposed to all these different oils and you're not quite sure what's going in your food obviously you can enjoy yourself and go out for meals every now and again but I think the best way we can do this is to just cook at home as much as possible. It doesn't have to be labour intensive and take all day long to whip up a meal, but it's really knowing what's going in your food. Make sure you're buying the best quality food that you can, avoiding the processed foods, refined sugars, lots of healthy fats and proteins because that's how we're going to make our hormones. So every single meal, make sure you have at least 50% of your plate compromised of plant foods, so your vegetables mainly. And then at least one source of healthy fat, whether that's avocado, olive oil, butter or ghee, nuts and seeds. And then another portion of healthy proteins too, so the high quality versions. If you're in the mind frame that meat or animal products are bad and that's why you're going leaning more towards a plant-based diet, then that's not necessarily true. The quality is very important. Actually, things like oily fish, organ meats, eggs chicken lamb proteins like that are actually going to be beneficial to your health if you're getting the best quality and you need amino acids from protein and cholesterol from healthy fats to create your testosterone your progesterone your estrogen so that's not going to be beneficial for you to restrict any of these food categories if you can buy organic as much as possible that's going to be another benefit because not only are you avoiding the pesticide exposure and just that toxic burden from the herbicides and pesticides used. These are also endocrine disrupting chemicals. So they have the ability to enter our body, mess with our gut bacteria, mess with our estrogen and our hormone production. So we want to avoid that. Plus the organic foods, even though they are a little bit more expensive, we're supporting the organic farmers and we're also going to get more nutrient benefits from these foods as well. Not in terms of macronutrients like the protein or the carbohydrates they tend to be the same it's more of the antioxidants that are found in a lot higher amounts in organic food because when 
a plant is sprayed with pesticides, it doesn't really have to fend for itself. These chemicals are killing the bugs, whereas in an organic plant, it really has to defend itself. And it does that by producing pigments and antioxidants in the leaves so that the bugs, when they eat them, they die or they're just turned off by some of these plants. So there are so many benefits of organic, not just in your diet, but your look at your water quality, the skincare that you're using, the household cleaners, because when you're trying to conceive as well, that's just going to benefit your future child too. So instead of waiting until you're pregnant or around the end of the year when you're trying to conceive, make those changes now and start to live like you're already pregnant. So I think you should continue with these things that I mentioned aim just to be optimally healthy in whatever way that means to you make sure you're managing your stress you're exercising you're avoiding some of these chemicals your diet's nutrient dense and anti-inflammatory and just aim to get your hormones balanced before you try to conceive that may sound like a lot you have to do but it's actually going to benefit you in the short term in the long run for your future health and also has a massive impact on your future child's health too and the genetic blueprint that you pass on in the moment it's going to be with that child for the rest of its life and maybe predisposing it for certain things making it less likely to develop certain conditions too and the healthier you are the less risk there is for pregnancy complications so it may seem like a lot of work to do in these next couple of months but it's going to be absolutely worth it and definitely let me know how you get on with that Okay, so question number two, we're going to shift gears a little bit. This one's from Anna, who's age 19. She says, hi, Vivian, I'm a student struggling with anxiety that seems to be getting worse. It began in my final year of high school, but did seem to worsen when I moved away for uni. My symptoms include palpitations, dizziness, a tight chest, sweating, and thoughts that run a million miles an hour. These definitely worsen when I'm particularly stressed and the day after a night out. They are almost unbearable. I sometimes just have to stay in my room all day because of fear and panic. My diet is as good as it can be for a student who lives away from home, but I do try my best to eat relatively healthy and choose better options compared to my friends. I used to be pretty active throughout my childhood and all through high school, but this has recently taken a back seat. Probably my only form of exercise is walking, and I sometimes do yoga and stretching videos when I remember and when I have time. I guess my question is, how do I start to manage or get rid of my anxiety? I've tried CBT with a counsellor, which wasn't very successful. And now my doctor is talking medications, which I really don't want to use. Are there any foods or natural remedies that I can try, which ideally don't cost a fortune? I appreciate all the info and resources you share online. Thank you so much, Anna, for that. I really appreciate it. It's comments like this that really keep me going and motivated. I just love when you send me your emails, how you've improved your health with maybe a blog post that I've written, or you've just been inspired to make healthier choices that day. It really does make my day. Anxiety is so common, even though you might not think it. I really want to thank you for sharing your experience. Probably a lot of your friends or a lot of the people you interact with on a daily basis are also struggling but maybe they just think that they have to live with it. And I think you've realized that it's not something that you should be living with and it's not something that you've always had. So that means it's something that you don't always have to have. The fact that it started and got worse after moving means that it's likely stress-related. So in terms of high cortisol, adrenaline, which are your main stress hormones produced by your adrenal glands. Your adrenal glands are 
those two little walnut-sized glands that sit on top of your kidneys, so in your lower back, and they help to regulate your stress response. Along with some other things, they help to produce hormones, they help to regulate your blood sugar levels and your electrolyte balance in the body. And you've noticed that when you're stressed, your symptoms get worse. So it is likely stress-related, so that's a good thing that we can actually do something about it. But there are many other root causes or drivers of anxiety, including food sensitivities, nutrient deficiencies, mindset and emotional challenges. And I shared this a couple of weeks ago now on Instagram stories. So if you head over to my Instagram page, which is at Viva Natural Health, then on my Instagram highlights that I've got saved, there's tons of free resources and information on there. I did one about anxiety and it's just covering the basics of what it is. and Just as a a bottom line overview, the goal with anxiety is to signal safety and security to your brain because when you have anxiety or depression or panic, then that's a sign that your adrenals and your nervous system is on overdrive at the moment, whether that's from the food that you're eating, the stressful changes to your lifestyle, the thoughts that you're thinking, the environment. These can all signal danger to your brain and that sends a signal to your adrenal glands to keep you safe, keep you protected and put you in this sympathetic nervous system state, which is the fight or flight. I chose this question because there are so many remedies and natural things online, but they do cost a ton of money. So working with a private therapist who charges thousands of dollars or pounds per session, there's the retreats that you can go on and do yoga in Bali for a week herbal medicines and supplements where you pay hundreds of pounds over the months and they've got all of these wild crafted berries and herbs but they cost you an arm and a leg so with this one I'm intentionally going to keep it with some of the free things that you can do because supplements and products like this can be helpful but unless you're doing the foundations then your symptoms are never going to fully resolve There's so much you can do with food and lifestyle that doesn't involve money. One of them being meditation. This is probably the most powerful change that you can make, not just for the stress and anxiety that you're dealing with now, but just for life in general. It just makes you more resilient against stress. It gives you a better perspective on life and just managing the stress that we're living in in this 21st century. I think everyone should be meditating minimum five day five minutes a day everyone can fit that in and if you say that you're too busy if you say that you don't have time for meditating you're the person who needs to be meditating more that is a fact and meditation is actually scientifically backed it's not woo woo it's not just trying to sit in silence clear your mind it's actually the opposite you're focusing on your breath and it's kind of brain training so you, you go to the gym and work on your muscles in your body but when was the last time that you worked on your brain muscle because that's what it is. It's a muscle and it needs to be worked to be optimally healthy. There are several apps that you can get. So Headspace, Calm, Insight Timer. There's tons of free YouTube videos. And just aiming for 10 minutes a day, maybe five minutes in the morning, five at night, 10 minutes in the morning, whatever works for you and your schedule. If you're dealing with anxiety about the day ahead, the morning is a better time to do it. Whereas if you if your anxiety is worse at night and you tend to struggle to get to sleep or you wake up in the middle of the night with just a ton of fear or worry then maybe do it at night or even better do it both times the next thing is exercise and I noticed that you said that it was a big part of your life maybe that could be 
a big factor in this maybe you feel like you've lost your identity in some ways and something that you love to do that you're no longer doing exercise is absolutely amazing for mental health depression anxiety if the benefits of exercise could be put into a pill it would be the most effective best-selling medication and drug out there it helps to boost endorphins improve your serotonin levels circulate stagnant energy so that's kind of a more energetic tcm ayurveda aspect on this when your energy is stagnant again this can be for a number of reasons poor diet stress sedentary lifestyle then that energy can kind of not be released and it can cause a lot of anxiety in the system so the more that you move the more that this energy can flow around the body circulating chi which is your your vitality and your energy levels is there a nature reserve nearby or a park or a forest or a beach maybe that you can go to and walk in nature that's probably the best way to start because you're not only getting the benefits of the exercise and the movements but when you're when you're moving outside you're also getting the benefits of sunlight and vitamin d and the negative ions from the ocean uh, or the soil if you take your shoes off do some grounding even better just connecting with nature that's a big factor that i see people dealing with anxiety mental health issues these days we're just cooped up inside we're on our phones all day and we're not being exposed to nature like we should be as human beings if that's not your thing then look into local dance studios or classes different groups that you can get involved in do some yoga videos in your bedroom rather than these stretchy ones that you're doing. Just do something, find something that you love. Dance can be really amazing in improving your hormones, your mental health. And if it's something that you've loved before, then maybe getting back into that will help to support your nervous system a little bit too and just remind your body of the things that you used to love. This can really help to lower your stress hormones and just get your body feeling like it did when maybe you were back at home or back at school with your friends just a little bit safer i would avoid intense exercise if possible so don't now go and do hit every single day or train for a marathon or do crossfit when you're in this anxious state that can just exacerbate it to make it a little bit worse because exercise is a stressor even though it's a good stress known as eustress rather than distress which is the negative stress it can be too much for an already sensitive system. So stick with the restorative exercises, yoga, meditation, stretching, walking. Those are going to be the best options. In terms of your diet and your nutrition, I don't expect you to eat all organic, gourmet, biodynamic foods while you're at university. I totally understand. I've never been to uni, but I think it can definitely be done in the right way on a budget too. I think I would personally struggle just because I have a lot of requirements and I really put a lot of emphasis on my food every single month. That's like the the number one thing that I invest in and it's really important to me. So I think I would really struggle or just be one of those weirdos who have like an instant pot and steamer and a courgette maker on the, on the work surface. I don't think I'd be hugely popular, but I never had to struggle with that. In terms of eating healthy foods on a budget that's going to support your mental health, I think just focusing on things that are in season because these are usually going to be cheaper to buy. Buying things in bulk, looking around for the best deals or searching online for different offers that supermarkets have on or if there's a local farmer's market or a farm shop that you can go to. 
at each meal, optimizing your blood sugar levels is going to be the number one goal because when our blood sugar levels are imbalanced, either they're spiking too high or they're coming crashing down a couple of hours later because you're eating the wrong foods or the wrong combination of foods, then that can lead to stress, the, the production of stress and some of these stress hormones like adrenaline from your adrenal glands and that causes the body to be in this fight or flight mode that alone can be a trigger of anxiety for many people but if you've got anxiety for another reason it can just be exacerbated and making things worse too so at every meal make sure you've got a source of protein fat and fiber avoid the refined sugars so ditch the junk foods you're probably going to spend more on that anyway so you're going to be saving money by not eating out at fast food restaurants, not eating Boots meal deals and other cheap foods, just spending your money on really good foods, maybe doing a weekly shop and writing down a meal plan for the week so that you're making sure that you're using everything up, nothing's going to waste and you've got a good balanced meal every single day of the week. Some of the most nutrient dense cheap foods that you can buy are going to be things like eggs frozen berries if you can't afford the fresh ones they're often a lot cheaper and just as nutrient dense things like oats seeds pumpkin seeds flax seeds fruits the cheapest ones are usually the ones that are in season and if you're concerned about the pesticide exposure then you've got the dirty dozen and clean 15 list i'll leave a link in the show notes as well for you to look at but if you can't afford the organic versions then you can actually just clean the fruit and veg yourself using a simple wash using things like bicarbonate soda or apple cider vinegar but i'll include another link with that too so you can have a look into it or you can peel them that will help to reduce some of the pesticide exposure on the beans can be good to have on hand as can ground meats it's usually a lot cheaper than something like a steak or chicken breast just get some ground turkey mince or ground beef or lamb and in your freezer make some extra meals and store them once you've cooked an extra batch always have on hand some frozen fish fillets or maybe some wild salmon tins of sardines those types of things are convenient nutrient dense and really simple to put together so it doesn't have to be fancy it doesn't have to take a lot of time and it can taste good as well the fact that your symptoms seem to be worse after drinking alcohol that could actually indicate issues with histamine i actually released two blog posts over the last couple of weeks on histamine intolerance it's something that i've dealt with personally and one of my biggest symptoms was anxiety along with palpitations and acne and itchy skin so alcohol is actually a depressant so people usually think it helps us calm down it helps us relax but it's actually depressant that's how it works the other negative effect for some people is that it's really high in histamine. Not only is it fermented, which is a process that increases the histamine in the food or the beverage, but it also blocks DAO enzymes. So that's the enzyme in your gut that helps to break down histamine. So it's kind of a double whammy when it comes to alcohol. And people who get a stuffy nose or get headaches migraines flushed skin itchy skin after drinking alcohol or feel depressed or anxious the next day can have sensitivities to histamine other foods include fermented foods like sauerkraut vinegars pickles leftover foods so if you are doing meal prep and batch cooking instead of storing them in the fridge i recommend keeping them in the freezer till they're ready to use because 
when food is left over, the bacteria can kind of proliferate on that and lead to histamine. If you're concerned about not drinking alcohol when you go out, so that doesn't mean that you have to stay at home all the time and not socialize absolutely not you can go out just explain to people that you don't drink no one actually really cares and if they are pushy then that's a sign that they're not actually friends of yours but if you do want to kind of look like you're joining in and stop people from pesting you about it then just get a glass of sparkling water put some lemon in there and no one will know or really care what you're drinking it's worth a trial so if you do 30 to 60 days of avoiding some of these high histamine foods and increasing your intake of antihistamine foods, they're going to be things like fresh herbs, coriander, parsley, watercress, cucumber, apples, onions. A lot of these are quite cheap, so just really boosting some of these instead of turning to a supplement. And I'll include the lists on my latest blog post that you can check out the connection between histamine and your hormones, and also histamine, how to lower it naturally. Some other cheap or free ways that you can support your anxiety are things like Epsom salt baths or magnesium oil spray. Obviously, you can get a supplement if that's going to work for you. But again, I'm going to keep it supplement free this one and just provide some of the other ways that you can get some of these nutrients in. So if you have a bath in your home or your accommodation, then get some Epsom salts online. They usually do big kilogram tubs for quite cheap. Or get a magnesium oil spray, you can put that on the soles of your feet or rub it all over your body after showering or when you're particularly anxious. Lavender essential oils, so you can buy a roll-on or you can get a spray on your pillow before you go to sleep or just spray it in your room. Just inhaling lavender has actually been shown to lower stress hormones, so it's such a simple, easy thing to add in and it's good to have on hand as well. So keep maybe a little roll-on or a little spray bottle in your purse. And when you're feeling particularly anxious, just catch yourself in that moment and just kind of support your body while it's dealing with those things. Herbal teas are cheap and cheerful ways to calm the nervous system and support your adrenal health. The specific herbs for this issue are chamomile, tulsi, it's also known as holy basil, it's my favourite herbal tea. Rooibos, lemon balm, skullcap and valerian all have anti-anxiety, anti-inflammatory and cortisol lowering properties and they're all caffeine free as well. You should really avoid caffeine if you're dealing with anxiety. A lot of students do rely on caffeine quite a lot because of the late nights and just the exams and things but the more that you can avoid caffeine and calm your body down, get some sleep as well. So instead of pushing through and studying all night and writing 10,000 words in the few hours before a deadline, your body is actually going to work better. It's going to remember more things for exams when you sleep. So your brain actually consolidates memories and information that you've learned that day whilst you're sleeping. So if you're not, people who go all night studying and staying up late for an exam they actually do worse than the people who study for a couple of hours get a good night's sleep and turn up the next day so really try to prioritize your sleep as much as possible even if that means taking a nap in the afternoon as well but ideally we want to be sleeping when the human body is designed to so when the sun goes down a couple of hours after that maybe 10 11 p.m that's when you want to go to sleep and you want to be waking up with the sun. Getting your circadian rhythm back on track is going to be a really useful way to support your hormones, support your mental health as well. 
and as the sun's coming out in the UK and the weather's turning a bit warmer, getting some vitamin D, that can be really important too, because vitamin D is an anti-inflammatory nutrient. It's actually a hormone, so it has hormonal effects in the body and that can span from the head to the toe. It can affect pretty much every single system, particularly mental health. I've noticed for myself when I was quite deficient a couple of years ago, I didn't really notice any negative effects during that period, but as soon as I started to supplement and boost my levels through sunlight, my mental health just completely changed and I hadn't really noticed how bad I was feeling. It's just like someone had turned a light switch on in my brain. There could be nutrient deficiencies occurring. So the way to combat that would be maybe some lab testing from your GP, eating a nutrient-dense diet and getting in some vitamin D from nature. Supporting your mental health and your emotional health is also very important and you should prioritize that too every single day, whether that's through journaling, just talking to a friend, doing a brain dump so before you go to bed or first thing in the morning just write everything down that's in your head whether it's a to-do list or worries from what's going on in your life or some of these maybe past emotional things that could have happened I think just getting your thoughts and concerns out of your head onto your paper can be a really therapeutic activity plus if you're on social media 24 7 comparing yourselves to different people and influencers then that needs to be really looked at and changed because mental health issues have absolutely gone on the rise since the world's obsession with social media has started. So make sure you're not on your phone till 11, 12 o'clock at night. Limit yourself to maybe two hours a day. If you're currently on it, six hours, just keep cutting it down until you find something that works for you. You don't need to come off it completely, but maybe take a look at the people that you're following. Talk to your friends about your stress. Go and spend time with your parents again if that's something that you're missing or the people that you've left behind in your home. And again, practices like meditation, maybe a yoga class, going out and meeting more people who you feel like you can talk to if that's an issue and people who are more holistic in their approaches. So you are an average of the five people that you spend the most time with. So just maybe take a look at who you're hanging around with if they're actually positive or negative influence on, the, on your life. I really hope that's helpful, Anna. I know this is a really stressful time for you, but I really feel like some of these recommendations will start to help you and help you get out of this funk that you've been in. But obviously, if you need further support, I really recommend that you work with someone, um, a therapist, even though the CBT has not worked for you before. There's plenty of other therapists out there who would love to work with you and support you through this. And let me know how you get on. That's all for today. So write in and share with me how you got on with these changes. Submit your questions if you've got any and I'll hopefully choose yours to read out next time. I'll be back next week with another interview with a great guest and you're really going to love it. So I'll speak to you soon. Bye guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Hormones in Harmony podcast. If you like this episode, please leave me a rating and review as this helps to spread the word to other women dealing with hormone imbalances. As a massive thank you gift, I'll send you a free guide, Six Steps to Hormonal Harmony. All you need to do is screenshot your rating and review, then email it to me at hormonesinharmony at gmail.com and I'll send you the link to download this free guide. If you haven't already, check out my website vivanaturalhealth.co.uk and Instagram page at vivanaturalhealth for tons more free content and inspiration. You can also schedule a free 30-minute hormone troubleshooting call to find out the next steps to take in order to overcome your symptoms naturally. See you back here next week for another episode.